You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak together in the studio about some of the spiritual practice issues that have been ex- we've been examining in our personal lives within the context of our Tayu Meditation Center teaching responsibilities and that have arisen in some of the Mystical Positivist shows that we've recorded over the last few months. We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Pimpinone, a comic opera in three acts, by Georg Philipp Telemann, performed by the Baroque Orchestra of St. Luke's, Rudolf Palmer, conductor. This piece is a recitative entitled Ich suche, I seek or I look. Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. Great to be here. This week on the show, Rob and I speak together in the studio about some of the spiritual practice issues that we've been examining in our personal lives within the context of our Tayu Meditation Center teaching responsibilities and that have arisen in some of the mystical positivist shows been recording over the last few months. So, Rob, welcome back to one of our uh, uh, rare solo duo shows on the Mystical Positivist. It's just you and me and um, perhaps anyone who happens to call in. Got it. So, do you want to get started or shall I? Oh, you go ahead. Well, I've been... um I was thinking earlier today about um, an issue because I had to write an email in response to some of our... um, 
some folks who have been on the show. Um, in fact, uh, our friends uh, Ken McLeod and Jim Wilson, because we had circulated an email among the four of us, uh, a little um, thread of email that, among other things, discussed the um, issue that uh, our friend Jim Wilson in particular likes to frame as the um, as turning from the ephemeral to the transcendent. That is, his understanding of the mystical, or what the mystical points to, is a, um, a shift in attention from the um, ephemeral to the transcendent. I'm using, I, th- I believe, his exact words. Yeah, and, and just uh, for a little more context, this, this arose out of a conversation, a recorded conversation that Ken McLeod shared with us that was conducted in Croatia when he was visiting his friend and uh, a, a past guest on our show, uh, Hokai Sobol, that uh, they had a conversation mediated by a, a, an English gentleman who uh, runs a, po- a podcast called the, I think the, uh, not not the Impermanent Buddhist, but the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, would, that would be double Buddhism or yeah, Buddhism I'll, squared. <laughs> I promise I'll, I'll put a link to the, uh, the uh, podcast on our um, uh, recording of this show. But the one of the topics that they were touching on in the conversation was what does it mean to be spiritual what is what is what is spiritual mm-hmm. and that was in part where this notion came up that uh, that well the, jim jim wrote an email response yeah yeah, that, I mean, that but I think, this point. yeah i think ken brought it up in an email when he shared the podcast with us but it was the idea that the the definition of the spiritual is the practice of turning the attention away from the eph- ephemeral onto the transcendental and that resonated with Jim, who I think uh, responded um, uh, with agreement and elaboration. And uh, that's the starting point for this discussion. Because we're, I think the question, you know, when we talk about mystical, when we talk about the purpose of this show, the mystical positivist, and we talk about spiritual practice, spiritual um, uh, teachings, what you know it means to be engaged in contemporary spiritual practice all around this is this idea of locating it in the turning of attention away from the ephemeral to the mystical and i'm uh, sorry from the ephemeral to the transcendental and this is something that uh i think we'll try to unpack here for a few minutes to uh both understand what this means and to respond in a couple of different ways as to whether we are completely or entirely satisfied with that formulation. So I'll, I'm just going to correct you in a couple of, on a couple of points that you were mentioning. It's the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Thank you. Um, and, um, and actually, I don't, I don't see uh, Ken bringing this point up. I think it was Jim in response to Ken. Hearing that, the show. Hearing, having listened to the show. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's... Um, you know, not a big deal, but 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 that's uh, who brought it up, and it, and it doesn't surprise me that Jim brought it up, or it didn't surprise me when I read that because that is that has been a theme that he has um, liked, and and Ken is in agreement with him or expressed agreement um, at in that email response thread and also and and in previous shows that we've done because this uh, we've had both Ken and Jim on at the same time, and I my recollection is that this theme has come up before, but. I expressed 
um, uneasiness about this idea of the shift from the ephemeral to the transcendent. Not that I am unhappy with making the distinction between the two um, exactly. That is to say, I think it can be useful for certain purposes and so forth. But I had two arenas of, of uh, and actually another one occurred to me as I was sitting here waiting for our show to begin, but at least two um, arenas of uneasiness with this formulation of the efe- shifting attention from the ephemeral to the transcendent. And the first one is simply that it's so easy for the mind, it seems to me, at least the Western mind, to... Um, see this distinction as something similar to and maybe even collapsible into the uh, body-spirit um, dichotomy that underpins so much thinking in the West, uh, philosophizing in the West for literally thousands of years. And, and from there we get um, a, a further... Uh, descent, as it were, into uh, bad and good. In other words, body bad, spirit or soul good. And and I'm uh, I'm unhappy with that because it um, devalues our our lived experience. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, what is happening with our bodies, what we're actually doing with uh, the experience um, that our that our bodies are the locus for. Um, gets uh, um, devalued, um, and um, and the idea has been that we that we should be looking at at things uh, higher in nature or something right. along those lines. Well, my my sense is that in certain spiritual traditions that are given to focusing on this notion of purification, that the worldly which we might understand is what's meant by the ephemeral. That's certainly one understanding of that. Right. Is often equated with um, impure, mm-hmm. and the heavenly or the transcendental is uh, equated with pure. And then practice becomes a program of ongoing purification, whether you're purifying your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, your body through any number of different methods, the arc is clear that one is moving away from the worldly and um, aiming for the heavenly. And that, so that's, that's one sense. Or, or the unworldly, whatever, yeah. not necessarily heavenly, but, but somehow something beyond the, the material world. And, and that's, a, that, that's certainly a familiar trope in... Um, uh, actually, uh, many many uh, it's, it's not uh, restricted to like Christianity or uh, I think there's various forms of Buddhism and uh, uh, Hinduism that sure. uh, embody that kind of flavor of things. Just like there's forms of those traditions that go in a completely different direction. So, well, I'm thinking of Plato as well. Yeah, uh, but 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 basically, there's a there's a a sense in which we're um, if we go with the language that Jim was using in his email and has used before on, the, on our show, then um, another another word actually that, that he used was the sensory versus the non-sensory, which uh, I think is problematic because I I, th- I think that um, 
if you frame it that way, then the mental does not get excluded in the same way that the uh, experience mediated through the body gets excluded. Right. In fact, I think in some respects you could argue that the uh, mental gets privileged in that because... It, cr- it could. I mean, it depending on... Depending on um, the speaker and the orientation, but I think that's an easy. That's that my uneasiness emerges from how easy it is for that that move that shift to happen um, uh, when we're framing things in this way. Now, I think that uh, when I listen to part of the talk that um, and the conversation that Ken had with uh, Hokit. Hokai and the, um, uh, the imperfect, the imperfect Buddhist. Buddhist, that uh, there was Ken tend, tended, and I've heard him say this on the show that the um, what he would call the ephemeral or what what this transition of attention is for him is to pull attention or shift attention away from the ordinary mind, quote mm-hmm. unquote, and uh, onto um, the mystical. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, then, I, as, as when we discuss this, the ordinary mind then is the, the world of concepts about things and the, the mind that's, um, you know, uh, mediates experience with, uh, ling- with the linguistics. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that's a favorite uh, uh, topic for you, and I'm sure you'll, you'll uh, expand on that in a moment. But, but I also want to bring out the... Um, the another another way in which I've experienced uneasiness with this basic idea of the um, ephemeral uh, shifting attention from the ephemeral to the uh, transcendent and and um, I mean I'll go back for a moment to this sensory versus non-sensory and um, we see that in Buddhism in the suttas especially, the uh, Pali canon suttas um, from, you know, the uh, uh, South Asian tradition, but also um, in some of the sutras. And it and it's a... Uh, by expressing uneasiness about this, it, I'm, I'm uh, I guess, um, further um, stressing that in my own experience, it's if we um, recontextualize the ephemeral as something that the mist, that the transcendent holds as the context for the ephemeral, that's a way. That's a different way to examine this. In other words, we're not shifting attention away from the ephemeral, but we're examining more deeply the context for the ephemeral and not assuming that that we know just from the surface of uh, how our mind works and to get back to what you were saying um, but that there may be some other context beyond that that we can interrogate examine mm-hmm. and consider the effects of in our lives so that is uh holding the uh, transcendent as the context and the ephemeral as uh, uh arising within the context of the transcendent that's right in the in certainly traditional uh 
formulations of, of um, uh, Hinduism, for instance. I think Shiva is often depicted as the context, and uh, Shakti is the um, right. manifestation. And in those traditions, one is not privileged over the other. Although sometimes well, Shiva start, starts to get more privileged, uh, but that's uh, that depends. No, on, no, uh, no, that's no, more it, of a sectarian thing. But but both are seen as uh, uh, aspects of the um, manifestation right and that and that i guess is 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 what i'm suggesting is a is a um a perspective that's that's more helpful um because speaking for myself and for so many of the people that i see and meet and talk to in our western culture i think there's there's a uh, uh a lot of um, negativity focused on our bodily experience that it that that our um, um, our ephemeral our ephemeral bodily experiences whether it's the sensory uh, the five sense realm the feeling realm etc that, that these things are are understood to be problematic and there's there's supposed to be this higher realm that we're supposed to have or achieve access to mm-hmm. and um, when you frame it like that then you're um, you're not giving the ephemeral its due and I actually think that's a mistake because if we reframe it in this other from this other perspective that you and I were just discussing then the ephemeral is not rejected it is not um, devalued it is understood to be, um, in many ways, the foundation from which we um, realize something larger, something greater. Yeah, I, I, there's a couple of things that come up for me in that regard. One is that uh, I think it's important to underscore that the core intuition of the Buddhist tradition, or a core intuition, uh, not to be too... Um, uh, overgeneralizing here is that the challenge of the ephemeral is that our our identification or our clinging to elements of the ephemeral is an, is uh, a recipe for suffering in the sense that uh, the ephemeral by its very nature is changing so any configuration that we may attempt to hold on to as a object of security or uh, whether it's a physical or mental um, object uh, is something that will be changing and well and that's and that's the ordinary mind that yeah. Ken that you were referring saying that Ken would be pointing to our friend Ken yeah well the ordinary mind uh, yeah cer- certainly the ordinary mind and the, or- the ordinary relationship that people have in their bodies to their life tends to be one in which we move from moment to moment and uh, attempt to cling to what uh, few victories we find and, and security we find, um, and the su- few, few victories. You know, <laughs> some fewer. Uh, some have more. That victories sounds like others. whining a little yeah, bit. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but but we we cling to these things um, and uh, live in this ongoing anxiety at the prospect of. What we have going away, yeah, and of, so, lo- of loss, yeah, of loss, and and that that anxiety, uh, I mean, 
the better functioning we are, the the lesser that anxiety can impinge on our lives. But that anxiety, if one really inquires into this, is uh, present in all of us at some level. In some respects, it's a, uh, a, a the nature of being uh, a human being to have. Well, I guess we're getting back to the to the four noble truths. There, uh, you know, you in the common. English translation, you know, suffering exists essentially, and 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 I think that's one way to interpret. Certainly, one way I've seen interpreted by, for example, Stephen Batchelor in his book After Buddhism and and other works, I believe, as well. Uh, so sure, that's a fundamental property. So 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 then the the one aspect of the spiritual program is to turn attention from the uh one's identification with suffering or one's identification with clinging to the ephemeral and then we get into the question of well, what are you turning your attention to are you uh, turning attention to something that is fixed the is there something that is the one thing in um uh life that doesn't change that you can cling to all you like and will be a uh uh abiding source of uh, inspiration and satisfaction or is it a recognition that the ephemerality is the nature of being and there's nothing to cling to uh, but simply to offer up or to release the uh, habit of clinging well um your question or questions don't admit of uh, a discursive answer, obviously. Um, and yet, um, my reflection upon all these things is precisely that we want to be looking at something else but not um, pushing away the source insight that the ephemeral that that can that looking at things through a uh, mistaken understanding that the ephemeral is not ephemeral is um, uh, a problem. Right, but but this I think part of my uh, comment and I I didn't I, I kind of backed myself into it and uh, wasn't aiming to go there in the first place, but. It calls into question the um, the notion of the transcendent, in that um, you know, even if you set aside the objection about good bad, you know, body spirit, um, the idea that there is a transcendent um, realm or a a, trans- a transcendent object on which attention can be placed. Um, suggests a meaning or a, a something that's distinct from the ephemeral because we're drawing a distinction here. Mm-hmm. And the um, so the question then is there really is there really a transcendent? Is there really a deathless up, upon which attention can uh, rest, or is the Relationship is is the changing of one's relationship to the ephemeral, the object of the spiritual program. Good question. So, what do you think? I don't. I don't actually have a, a an opinion about it because an opinion would just be 
um, another um, uh, attachment to to the ephemeral. Right. Um, what makes sense to me, though, um, is to hold, or well, rather create the habit of holding that question yeah. open, and that's um, that's when. Uh, interesting insights and um, and helpful experiences can emerge. It seems to me that's, or at least that's that's been, I think, my experience, or at least how I've glossed it to myself. Um, that it's been my experience that, that that holding that as a question, as opposed to assuming that there is some thing. Um, which the transcendent could never be anyway, uh, presumably. But and yet, and yet, the, the habit of mind that that wants to imagine that there is a thing um, of some nature that um, we can call transcendent um, is is indeed part of the problem. So, so how do you get out of it? You just you just don't settle on an answer. Is is one was one response? It's one way to look at it. Right. Um, not settling on an answer is certainly uh, a way to be in relationship to the question. Mm-hmm. The aspect, one aspect of the question that uh, occurs to me is that um, to the extent that one uh, objectifies the transcendent, which may, is, I think one is doing what you were objecting to earlier, which is uh, mm-hmm. uh, one is sort of creating a false dichotomy mm-hmm. and somehow uh, uh, it becomes an excuse to turn attention away from uh, what is presenting itself and onto potentially a conceptual um, abstraction mm-hmm. that is uh, an idea that may ultimately not have uh, the kind of vitality that a relationship with something more true about our nature could offer. Right, and that's that, that's the danger. That's and that's why I, uh, you know, in my uh, email, I was expressing, as I said, uneasiness about this um, this uh, gloss description of shifting attention from one thing to another thing, essentially. So so the way that you put it earlier about uh, the tra- understanding the transcendent as uh, uh, holding the context for the ephemeral mm-hmm. is not so dissimilar from what I was describing of the, pr- the program of spiritual inquiry to be changing one's relationship to the ephemeral. Mm-hmm. And and in that sense, then, the, the you know the distinction the distinction I'm drawing in all this and why why you know the reason why we're this is this isn't just an abstract philosophical uh, uh, discussion. Well, well because, sure it is. Well, it is, <laughs> Some but, ways. but it, ha- it, it has it has it's not just because it, it, there are practical consequences for effective yes, practice. That's right. And in a, in a to the extent that one locates the transcendent as an object to turn attention to. One pulls one's attention from the ephemeral and is looking for that which doesn't change. Right. And often that which doesn't change uh, can be can present itself in the conceptual realm, which is certainly um, uh, the 
kind of program that uh, Plato was articulating with the in the, uh, in the you know the articulation of ideal forms mm-hmm. that there's this pure conceptual realm that doesn't change mm-hmm. uh, a triangle is a triangle you know essentially and mm-hmm. the ephemeral represents the imperfect attempt of substance or something to uh, embody that that perfection so we can turn our attention to to that that's a very different program than what you're su- describing which would be to bring one's attention more fully onto the ephemeral uh, and in fact to uh, release in that movement of attention the elements of our experience, for instance, our, our process of conceptual abstraction that we use in order to kind of cling to the contents of the ephemeral. Yeah, so uh, so the what I'm trying to uh, suggest uh, and point to here is that, uh, as you say, there's a, um, there's a way to engage with the ephemeral that does not except that just the surface appearances of the ephemeral, if you will, um, are everything um, about it. That a deeper, or or a continuing deeper inquiry about the ephemeral, the ephemeral in and of our bodies, the ephemeral in and of our senses, the ephemeral in and of our feelings and thoughts, Mm -hmm. that... um, Holding, holding a, uh, a question, holding question about that, holding an openness about that, perhaps is one of the more direct ways to actually apprehend something that would be the context, which which I'm suggesting is a, is as good a way to think about the uh, transcendent as any other I can imagine. Right, and and the. Uh, holding or the penetrating attention is the quality of attention that releases any of the mind's attempts to uh, fix or stop the process of deepening. And and, and it's interesting because that that process is the process of uh, uh, conceptualization. When, When we mediate to the extent that we cling to the concept, I should say, it's it, mm-hmm. I, I should be I should be yeah, clear because yeah. it's possible for the arising of a concept, which is and what I mean by a concept, it could be a description or a uh, an idea of understanding about uh, uh, what's happening to one in the moment. But to the extent that one uh, clings to that, then the inquiry stops, and one is left with uh, a. Uh, clinging to a concept which progressively will have less and less ability to cover the facts of one's experience and hence comes the stress and the tension of suffering but if one has the ability to release that and to return one's attention in a non-conceptual way to what is happening in the present in one's body in one's heart and in one's mind then one can be fully present to the presentation of the ephemeral in the moment right so so that's why practice some some kind of spiritual practice is so important that takes as you as you're putting it um, takes the center of of our attention um, away from 
conceptual stories, if you will, about how the world works, how we work, etc., and um, and allows for for something else to emerge along with those things. It's not it's not that we we necessarily want to purge um, our sensory data, um, which is where I might differ from Jim, for example, um, our friend Jim, um, or or our um, emotional experience, or our intellectual experience. We don't necessarily have to purge these things. We can let them be what they are. But if your relationship to it changes, to those phenomena change, then that's when I'll offer the um, possibility that that is when we can become aware of or apprehend in some fashion the um, trans- what's what we're trying to gloss with this word transcendent yeah i mean then then we're we're reconfiguring what transcendent means and uh what what we're transcending mm-hmm. in that case is the ordinary relationship that we have to a series of uh, conceptual explanations about the nature of our experience and the idea that our experience is uh, fixed in some way or isn't isn't subject to an ongoing um, uh, change or movement. So I want to know, I want to understand a little bit better your understanding of the conceptual versus the non-conceptual in this, in this work, because I know you've, uh, been reading, um, I mean, for many years you've been reading philosophers who 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 try to articulate this, and I'm and I, and I myself am not inclined to read those. Uh, it, it's the the discussions are usually highly abstract, and my mind simply doesn't um, latch on to that. But um, but. My experience, you know, day-to-day, moment-to-moment, seems now to come up with, or present me with, moments when um, I have simultaneously a bodily experience, uh, you know, presence in my body, awareness of a kind of um, emotional absence of boundaries and also uh, uh, apprehending the um, a sort of mental appreciation of of the layers of complexity of of processes that are happening inside and outside me in such a way that the only way I can hold and be present to all that is to let is to utterly let go of of any idea that I'm going to retain that for myself yeah and so um what I'm not sure about or I guess what I'm asking you about in in your readings um philosophical um about the conceptual and a non-conceptual, uh, you know, an area that you've been very interested in, because you have you have a you've had your mind has had a facility with uh, abstraction that mine does not. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm wondering how those how what I've just described to you as my uh, experience in practice, you know, of late, uh, off and on, from time to time, um, fits with with that sort of uh, description. Um, well, it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, I, I, the way that I look at the what I call the conceptual is a. I guess it's symbol making in a way, um, and it's uh, sim- symbols used to describe uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. And so you can think of um, uh, a a way to think about how our attention, the phases of our attention um, in our experience, which in a way is what you uh, described, is um, there's. A, you know, awareness of the self, which may be awareness of ourself at a mental, emotional, or even a bo- embodied level. But there's kind of just a, an awareness of uh, being. There's awareness of other, which is uh, the realm of relationship. And then the uh, then there's sort of awareness of system, which is the interaction of self and other. So when with awareness of system we can be present to you know a configuration or a relationship where there's oneself in relationship to things that are presenting themselves in the world and when we then let's say give that a name uh we or a sim or a symbol yeah or a symbol the name is a symbol if we give How, it a symbol can, can we can we, do, can we use emoticons we can use emoticons oh, when, so so when we give it a name though uh, we are engaged in a um, a little bit of a sleight of hand because we're taking a dynamic process and taking a freeze frame photo of it, mm-hmm. and uh, and the problem only comes when we cling to that uh, photograph as though that's a, a static, accurate representation of the flux of experience. It can be useful. And in fact, evolutionary biologists uh, uh, who are given to you know philosophy of mind and consciousness uh, look at the evolution of the world that we experience, uh, kind of the you might almost say the instinct, instinctive conceptual world that we inherit either you know from instinct or from uh, you know training as children is something that has arisen uh, kind of a, in a evolutionary way because it was an effective way of sort of uh, allowing these bodies to persist successfully in the world. Now, I don't want to get into that too much in the sense that... It, but well, it, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just add in. I, 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 one of the more abstract realms that I do, that I do occasionally delve into is, the, uh, um, is when archaeologists, since that's my um, academic field... Um, look into the evolution of language and, yeah. and of course, draw on linguistic and, and various, you know, social and other analyses to try to make an argument about how language making arose in, on an evolutionary or in an evolutionary context. But I, but I'll, I'll say that you know, the attempts are interested. The, the attempts to, 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 to 
make something interesting out of all that are can be at times interesting to read, but other times it, there, there's no coherent conclusion that I've seen right. that that is fully satisfactory. There there are moments when when at least I have the sense that an interesting point has been raised, and yet. Um, one has to let it go because it doesn't it doesn't articulate with other with other um ways other other perspectives that yeah. are helpful yeah uh, so you know and, I, and as i said i don't want to i don't want to go too deep into that i mean i i, I really just want to mention that there it is possible to look at these you know the the, uh, the presentation of the concepts that we have for from a variety of sources in our lives as things that are themselves subject to evolutionary forces but the 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 point of going back to your original question of how, how am i construing the the conceptual it's this that there's a symbol of some for, often a language symbol but it can be uh, 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 an image it can be you know uh, geometric if you will there's symbols that we can experience in relationship to um the experiences that we have uh, of our presence in a world with a body and that we map those symbols onto those experiences and uh, create what we can call, you know, understanding at some level of uh, mm -hmm. why what is happening is happening in the way that it's happening. And the important thing, and I think the Buddhist intuition is that none of these things are permanent they're tools, and you've often said this. You know, it's like a it's like a tool. Like you pick up a hammer when you have a job to do. Concepts are useful. They allow us to t function effectively with the apparent consistencies that we do experience in our lives. And to the at the point at which the tool is no longer useful because the uh, consistencies no longer seem to apply, then we put the tool down. If we continue to use the tool, then we. Uh, uh, you know, go. We may be using a hammer when the screwdriver would have worked better. Right. Yeah. Or yeah. Exactly. And and ultimately, th that that's where this uh, anxiety and suffering uh, can come from, particularly when the tools that we're using are tools that we use to navigate our emotional lives and our relationships with people. Well, that is where things off often get sticky, is the emotional and and the um the intellectual as understood as the stories we tell ourselves mostly um it's not that the abstract level that you're describing is is a story exactly and yet where most people are hanging out where most people where mo where most of their attention is most of the time or much of the time is in uh um Stories that that people invest belief in, right? And and then people, it's a very common, particularly in our uh, current culture, for people to mediate their entire experience of the world through the uh, uh, assertion or or attention on these narratives and these stories, mm -hmm. such that. One is experiencing the story as opposed to experiencing the real presentation of life in the moment. Right. And those stories may have um, 
little or nothing to do with current circumstances. Right. So, so, so the getting back to the original, uh, uh, you know, comment about uh, Ken, Ken McLeod's and Jim's conversation about turning attention from the ephemeral to the transcendent. If you construe the transcendent as the recognition of the ephemerality of all of that, um, then uh, turning attention away from the stories, the uh, the uh, flood of uh, internal narrative and description, and holding a space for being present to what is manifesting in the moment may rec- represent the mystical project then well I, I would I would just slightly change your language there because it's not turning attention away from those stories it's just letting the stories be the stories and opening up to to right. something more right. than just the story Reco- recognizing the the true nature of the story which which by recognizing the true nature of the story the effective charge that draws our attention compulsively to the story reduces. Okay. And in that sense, then, you're not really turning your attention away from... You're not really turning your attention away from the story. What's happening is that you are releasing the compulsive attraction of one's attention to the story. And so... To the story, to the story it's, it's as if it... Um I guess the way you know one way to look at this is that is that when we're identified with a story or a thought or an emotional um, experience, it fills. It's as if we have a, a mental screen um, that we're looking at, and it fills the mental screen. You know, it's a we're in a it's as if we're in a movie theater, yeah. and that's. All that exists is that story being played out on the mental screen that we're watching, and um, and so part of this is is sort of pulling back and um, recognizing that it's just one possibility happening. It's not saying it's not devaluing it. It's not saying that's that's wrong or that's. Um, um, not valuable it may well be valuable at certain moments for certain purposes in certain contexts but it's when we you know uh, um, invest our our um, our uh, attention solely on that story that we get that we get tripped yeah. up or trip ourselves up right and it's a, it's a, it's an interesting. This calls up an interesting question for me that um, ties into part of what I was, uh, um, you know, hearing on the uh, podcast Kinshin shared with us. It also came up a little bit with our discussion with uh, Robin Bloor, the Fourth Way teacher and writer from last week, and it's it's in the. It's a question about the the necessity of engaging in the mystical program or the uh, spiritual program, and the way it just arose to me in the context of the movie theater analogy that you're using is that we certainly understand that if we're all sitting in a theater watching a movie and suddenly someone next to you sort of says, "Hey, wake up! Don't you see this is just a movie?" We're probably going to be annoyed with them. 
Mm-hmm. And so it does seem to me that beings of all shapes and sizes in this universe may have different purposes for being here. And when someone is most immersed in a movie... Uh, doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that is uh, without purpose. Uh, it may be for entertainment, it may be for study, it may be for uh, some unpresented purpose, but it doesn't necessarily mean that um, uh, it's necessary for that person to wake up from the movie at that time. And so the for the the people who find themselves less compelled by the movie, <clears throat> there are path, pathways available for them to t- turn their attention to a different context than just what's going on on the screen in the theater. And in that sense, it, it isn't a necessary path so much as it's a path that if one feels a yearning or a calling for, that there's a way and there's a, uh, uh, there's, there is a, teaching and there are people who have walked that path who can offer something uh you know in a, in a direction but not everybody necessarily has that um uh deep yearning well i i it seems to me that where you're trying to go here is to um suggest that people have different relationships to you know if if you accept for the sake of argument for the moment, my description of the transcendent as being the context for the ephemeral, then it seems to me that we can say that people have have differing um, capacities to hold in attention a larger context. That might include what we're call what I'm calling the uh, transcendent, um, and um, and it's not like even even people who who your experience of may may seem to um, indicate that they are entirely caught up in and and fully invested in one particular story at a given moment of those lives. It doesn't mean that they haven't had moments when there was a re- relaxation of the clinging, when they were kids or something like that, and were able to touch something bigger or uh, exp- or apprehend something larger. Um, but um, it's true also that um, there's an inertia that often we experience when we keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, um, that is that can be hard to shake, and and so that's one of the one of the ways in which um, we see a differentiation among people about how they um, how they would understand, if at all, or relate to, if at all, this idea of the transcendent um, as the context of the ephemeral. Yeah. I mean, when I think about the many people that we've talked to on this radio show, and we always ask the the question of new people, you know, tell us something about your childhood and early experiences that may have prefigured your 
uh, lifelong dedication to a path of spirit, mm -hmm. whatever form that takes. And the variety of answers are always uh, amazing and interesting, and I, it's one of the things I enjoy about uh, that question. And there doesn't seem to be any, you know, it, does, it, it seems as different as people's life circumstances are different. There doesn't seem to be uh, a program by which... Um, uh, someone is initiated into a life of spirit as much as it almost seems like people <clears throat> arrive here and some are disposed to that um, inclination uh, more so than others and with that disposition attract experiences to themselves that help kindle that flame. Yeah, I, I don't have a, a problem with that formulation, but it's but we're we're just trying to uh, describe something that is essentially indescribable or, or not can't be can't be fully satisfactorily explained. We're simply trying to describe what what we see around us and 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 in the way that we do it that you're doing it just now, for yeah. example, and I was doing it a moment ago. Um, that seems to create a, a coherent account for how. These differentiate these uh, different ways that people have of of being in the world um, emerge. Yeah, and 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 I should be clear about you know uh, our purpose here isn't to provide the answers. Our pur purpose here is to invoke the question, and we are responding and you're you're smiling because you think that I like to give the answers but uh, uh <laughs> oh there's a nice projection <laughs> yeah. but but the but I look at it more like uh the the fluidity of ideas or the fluidity of a conversation like this is uh to me I liken it to uh uh musical improvisation you know mm -hmm. that that there's a that at the end of the show even though it's recorded and you can play a podcast, it's less about the content of the ideas as it is about the feeling and the uh, the mood that the invocation of the ideas convey. Sure, I agree. And that's important. Um, I mean, it's one of the uh, w one of the things that people often, I think, attach to um emotional representations but in the gurdjieff scheme of things that would be the higher emotional it seems to me as opposed to the uh you know more monkey emotional kind of right. uh, stuff yeah and and it, it's interesting because we as we drove over here we were listening to an excerpt from uh, uh a podcast that uh we were describing earlier and it's not so much, you know, in a way, it feels like we're carrying on that same conversation. And it's a conversation that we've had with most of the participants of that particular podcast at, in different ways and at different times. And then there was an email conversation. And all we're really trying to do and all we are, our program with this show is to keep the conversation alive and to uh, keep the mood alive of this uh ever-deepening inquiry into the nature of being and spirit and mysticism. Yeah, so you're um, proposing, it seems to me, that um, there are facets 
maybe we maybe in terms of what I just said a moment ago, we want to call it higher facets of a higher emotional and higher perhaps uh, higher intellectual center um, experience that um, that creates a context for um, understanding that the ephemeral um, has 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 itself a context and is not just uh, a waste, a, a wasteland. In other words, and and that's one of the that's one of the that's one of the takeaways that that I that I wanted to convey with my um, response to this idea of shifting attention away from the ephemeral to something else, however we name it is that um the ephemeral is not a wasteland and that's not, that's that's that recognition is has a certain feeling has a certain uh, dimension and that's something that i find um nourishing to practice so in the sense and nourishing, nourishing to the, to the um, pursuit of the mystical, which is to find the mystical in the immediacy of life, as much as possible, yeah, and the immediacy of the presentation of life through the body, mm-hmm. as well as uh, through our feelings and our. Uh, uh, and our and our man. lofty abstract concepts right, too. Right, sure, right. I mean that's that. It's not. Uh, I hope no one understands me to re- be rejecting the abstract, but the abstract is a. Um, uh, uh, it's it's a, it's a new capacity for human, you know, for for beings on on this planet. So, um, you know, yeah, it's but, not surprising that 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 we're that we are of. Uh, that we have varying levels of competence with it. Yeah, I mean, I think the the abstract um, uh, functions at different levels in uh, uh, the animal kingdom in the form of instincts and and the like. But we are uh, unusual, and higher primates are unusual in the in the ability to um, deal with a abstract relationship and uh, sort of. <laughs> Rea- not, inter- interact with it as a thing. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure I'll, I, I agree with you about the instant, uh, uh, the abstract and instincts, but but I think we can just let let that go and. Uh, we will have something to talk about in the next hour. I see. That that will uh, that will set us up. But this 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 is um, definitely a um, interesting uh, discussion uh, so far and. If you just joined us, you are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I have been speaking together in the studio about some of the uh, spiritual practice issues that we've been examining in our own personal lives in the context of our Italian meditation teaching responsibilities and some of the ideas that have arisen in some of the Mystical Positivist shows and related conversations that we've been having over the last few months. We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Pimpinone, a comic opera in three acts, by Georg Philipp Telemann, performed by the Baroque Orchestra of St. Luke's, Rudolf Palmer, conductor. This piece is a duet, Stendi Stendi.
Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joining by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. This week on the show, Rob and I speak together in the studio about some of the spiritual practice issues that we've been examining in our personal lives within the context of our Taiyu teaching responsibilities and that have arisen in some of the shows we've been doing recently and some of the conversations we've been having with uh, friends over the last few months. So, Stuart, I'm going to, in a moment, uh, ask you to uh, go on um, uh, with some of the uh, themes from the first hour in light of the reading that, uh, the idea of the world, but but first I'm going to interject here uh, something from another theme from that first hour, and I was just uh, looking at... um, the book Gurdjieff Reconsidered um, by Roger Lipsy, um, uh, the subject of our show two or three weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and um, actually, it might have been four weeks ago now that I think of it. Anyway, um, I was just reading this uh, a chapter called Lux in Tenebris, the 1930s. In other words, light in the dark, darkness, this uh, dark period of Gurdjieff's uh, life, apparently, after he lost the Priore, etc. And um, um, Lipsy is working with this uh, group of women called the Rope, and um, he makes a, uh, uh, an interesting um, point. Peter Brook, of course, is a famous uh, uh, fourth-way um, practitioner, but also famed theater and film director who probably knows as much about Gurdjieff as he definitely knows about Shakespeare, Lipsy writes. Gurdjieff possessed um, a Shakespearean dimension. Nearly every play of Shakespeare has royalty doing what they do, amorous or murderous, and a subplot peopled with men and women of the trades, taverns, markets, brothels, and underworld. Gurdjieff offered his version of inclusiveness in an invitation to Salito one afternoon, or excuse me, one evening after dinner. Canari, that's the name he used for her. Canari, come with me now for promenade and taxi. Where? Oh, low place. I tired. I think not, Mr. Gurdjieff. Trouble with you, Canari. You always look for high thing. Must have both in life. So, um, so that relates, of course, to this discussion that we had in the first hour about uh, um, the um, uh, ephemeral and the transcendent, because it's so easy to look look at these two things and label one low and the other high, right. and both are necessary. Um, and that's why I, since since my eye just happened to fall on that passage, I decided to relate it. But now I'll, I'll invite you to um, do a similar thing and um, relate that discussion to some of the um, stuff you've been uh, reading to uh, inform your practice lately. Well, I have, a, uh, as you mentioned earlier, a penchant for uh, philosophical abstraction. And uh, certainly one of the themes, not so much... I, I differentiate it from my spiritual practice proper, but it it has um, been one of the ways in which I have aligned my philosophical interests with uh, my uh, spiritual work, and that's to look at philosophical representations of the nature of what is. You know, and these come in the form of you, know, you see them in Buddhism, you'll see them in. Uh, the Vedantic tradition, you see them in uh, the process uh, uh, 
theology of uh, someone like uh, Alfred North Whitehead. It comes in many different forms, and I've kind of followed the the conversation, but it comes up now uh, quite a bit in the scientific and uh, kind of public intellectual sphere uh, in contemporary Western society in the notion of uh, studies of consciousness and the attempts to understand what is consciousness and um, uh, what is its relationship to um, the material realm. So the whole inspiration for this show uh, is in part, the name of the show certainly is a play on the name for what now is called physicalism, but was originally this notion that was very, you know, got started, you know, in the 19th century and really gained full steam in the 20th century of logical positivism, which is the idea that... So that's the same as physicalism. I didn't quite grasp that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, physicalism seems to be the uh, name. In fact, uh, uh, several months ago when we had uh, 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 Menas uh, Kafatos on the uh, uh, show, he... He spoke about uh, he he would refer to physicalism and ah, in his book okay. referred to physicalism. Okay. So that that seems to be the the occurrent uh, name for um, the materialist program, which basically says that what is fundamentally real in the world is matter, and uh, what that what the most primitive or smallest particle is. Maybe uh, a, a you know a subject of study, but uh, ultimately you get down to primitive matter, and it's not conscious, and it's only in the arrangements and patterns of that matter that a higher level function like consciousness arises. Got it. So that's that's the materialist uh, program. You know, the contrast to that is uh, what's called idealism. And idealism isn't a new philosophical idea. You know, you find it in uh, the Vedantic tradition. You find it in Neoplatonism. You find it in um, the oh, uh, medieval medieval philosophy. Medieval philosophy. I think the philosophy of Berkeley is uh, uh, idealistic. And the what what idealism basically uh, states is that um, mind or consciousness is fundamental, and uh, what we see as matter uh, or the stuff of the world is represents uh, patterns of excitation of uh, this conscious substrate. And so what w- I, I ran across um, an article first in a, uh, a blog in Scientific American by a philosopher named uh, Bernardo Kastrup, who has a series of books that he's written. Uh, the one I've been reading is called The Idea of the World, A Multidisciplinary Argument for the Mental Nature of uh, Reality. But I've seen some other researchers uh, in the uh, realm of perception, like a guy named Donald Hoffman that I've followed for many years, uh, with some colleagues came out with a mathematical representation of an idealistic picture of uh, uh, how an observer functions. They created this to facilitate their research in perception. They wanted a formal language to talk about the process of perception, and yet in doing this they came forward with a idealistic picture, which is the fundamental reality is the observer, and it's patterns of excitation of observers observing other observers that gives rise to the uh, various levels of the uh, reality that we experience. 
But one of the things that I found interesting in reading uh, Kastrup's work is that uh, he starts with what I what I agree with is a uh, foundational intuition, which is the only thing that you really can know is the fact of your existence or the fact of your experience. That reality presents itself to us through uh, uh, what's called uh, phenomenal uh, phenomenal factors or ph- phenomenology, or uh, through you know basically the experiencing moments of experience. So in this kind of pursuit, uh, you know, people will talk about uh, phenomenon or phenomenology, and that's what that's what we know. Anything we say about that thereafter represents an explanatory well uh, let me let me just let me just jump in here because you said when you say that's what we know um that implies already to know something implies a um an intellectual realm and i don't think that's what you meant to say isn't it isn't didn't you really mean to say something more along the lines of that's what we are aware of yeah or 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 you could say that that's what we know directly is another way of saying that i mean the, the distinction the distinction that's being drawn here you know without getting into the semantics of no know, knowing and and uh, logic is when when you have an experience a sensory experience it presents to you immediately mm-hmm. you know the color green presents to you immediately mm-hmm. in other in other words um you apprehend that um, phenomenon without having to use a uh, an intellectual center t- <clears throat> tool. Right. Excuse me. Right. Now, when you start to look at patterns of consistency in the phenomena that we experience, that's when we start to build models of the world, and that's where we start to build stories about matter and stories about the laws of physics and things like that and categorically that represents a explanatory abstraction as opposed to a direct experience okay there's nothing necessarily wrong with that can you give give an example just so people understand what you're saying yeah yeah so uh um uh you know i have a sensation right now i'm sitting at the studio my i have a immediate sensation of uh, my knee against a table. Now, the sensation is presenting itself directly. My story, to even call it my knee against a table, already invokes a a series of abstractions. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so then when I speak about, you know, a table existing independent of the sensation that I just experienced... I'm now asserting a kind of uh, uh, reality that is predicated or grounded in a explanatory abstraction as opposed to a direct experience. Uh-huh. Got it. So what, the point that he, this guy makes in his uh, early part of the book, you know, Mr. Castro, Castro, and and I've only I've just started reading this, so I've read his his arguments against physicalism. That is the idea that uh, the ground of reality and ex- experiences matter. His his argument is that normally it's 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 um, today in the terms of thinking people either affect a kind of a dualism a mind body dualism if you will uh, by 
equating, you know, matter as existent and uh, mental properties as existent or consciousness as existent. And, you know, I mean, some people certainly do say that matter is the only thing that exists and, you know, functions of mind or consciousness arise as a result of configurations of matter. But other people are saying that, oh, no, you can't reduce... uh, uh, subjective experience to configurations, so mind has to be fundamental. And so there's a dualism where both matter and mind are treated as fundamental. And and then there's uh, there's various flavors of that kind of uh, engagement. But he makes an interesting point, which is that uh, to reduce um, mind to matter, which is the uh, physicalist uh, project, and to reduce matter to mind, which is the idealist project, are not um, uh, philosophically symmetric because, in fact, uh, when you talk about mind, we have direct access to the phenomenal. Uh, We don't have direct access to the material. So, in other words, it, it, you, you... Well, when you say we have direct access to the phenomenal, to put it in more ordinary language, mean you mean that we have direct access to experience. Yes. And that what we interpret about that experience is, is the step removed that you're talking about. Right. And so it's, it's uh, actually um, because to try to describe or to uh, conf- you know explain experience in terms of the um, abstractions that we make from experience and to make that those abstractions as the fundamental thing is a a, f- a flawed project compared to starting with experience and then taking uh, looking at the abstractions we make uh, to describe the material world and recognizing those as being constituted of experience or being constituted of mind. Okay. And so th- what it was interesting to me because he privileges the idealist, you know, whereas it's fashionable now even as the most open-minded uh, modern philosopher to try to treat in the same category physicalism and idealism, he actually makes a really strong uh, point. He uses the term epistemic for, you know, it's a point about categories of knowledge that you can't, Actually, idealism is a far more reliable guide to st- a starting point for understanding the nature of the world than physicalism is. And why is this significant, besides uh, me being entertained by these ideas, is... Um, I'm glad you got there. It has, a, it has consequences for um, both how we treat matters of mind, how we treat matters of mindfulness, how we uh, uh, relate to the purpose of spiritual practice, and it also relates to uh, our senses of where we derive meaning in our uh, lives. Whereas uh, a physicalist project um, is, you know, can be or can give rise to a kind of a nihilism or a kind of a a sense that... um, we are alone in this world. It doesn't necessarily have to, but I think you have to do some uh, internal somersaults to avoid this kind of conclusion that nothing matters because if the world is just blind matter and we exist as patterns upon that blind matter, uh, the sense and meaning of our 
existence is um, that much less um, significant. Whereas if we recognize that the very substance of our experience and being is connected with the substance and experience of the totality and that we are connected and that the apparent separations in our experiences as individuals is more of a um, an illusion or, a, or an after-the-fact development than a fundamental nature of our existence, then it speaks to a um, a, a different maybe a more vital well well from which to draw the, a source of inspiration. I'm glad you can. <laughs> Guess you kind of lost me there after a while. <laughs> All right. Well, because I I'm, I'm not sure what this source of inspiration what what this inspiration what form it would take. Well, I I think uh in the same way that we spoke in the last hour about the uh sense and meaning of putting attention on the ephemeral uh is very much that if you understand everything that presents itself as a reflection of mind, then a quality of attention that is present to and uh, penetrates into that presentation is a uh, taking us to something fundamental about our natures. I'm, I'm not following that. Can you explain it differently? Or well, I just, if everything is mind, uh, then our being present to uh, reality as it presents itself to us is to partake of and to uh, bring our attention to what is f- fundamentally real. Whereas if we if everything is material and uh, uh, you know a subject of uh, blind force, then at least to me in a in a sense there isn't a larger uh, hole to connect into as so much as there is a, a struggle just to uh, persist as an individual. Okay, I'm I'm still not completely. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I guess, I mean, I understand part of this argument. I, I guess to you're using you're using the word mind in a way differently than we use it than we were using it in, in the first hour. It's true. I mean, you could use consciousness or awareness or uh, 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 in this in this conversation, I'm kind of conflating a lot of terms and not not, not trying to get into a specific uh, differentiation between that kind of terminology. I'm I'm more dealing with the the, the crude partition that we normally think of in the, the philosophical debate between consciousness and matter, mm-hmm. or awareness and ma- of, and matter. Mm-hmm. So, um, so a mystical positivist understanding, I guess you're saying, comes from what you're calling, uh, not understanding. Uh, the uh, your understanding is that is that consciousness is primary. Yes. Okay, and you're using this work to 
articulate why you think that's true. Yeah. Uh, and as a philosopher, this uh, writer Bernardo uh, Castro makes a a case very well that certainly aligns with my intuition for naming the show The Mystical Positivist, um, uh-huh. w- which is that, in fact, he draws out that intuition much more formally in a way that makes a compelling case that idealism uh, or the understanding of uh, the world or the universe as being grounded in consciousness is rigorously, from a philosophical point of view, more... Um, uh, how would I put it? A better, a better argument, or has less objections, if you will, than an argument that says that uh, matter is the primary constituents of uh, reality. I guess the problem, uh, the question I have is, why is that idealism? Um, I understand the point that. Um, I think this connects to a sort of platonic, um, you were talking in the first hour about uh, platonic ideal mathematical uh, uh, forms or something. Yeah, like it's, 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 that's different. Um, well, then you need, <laughs> that's, I was getting completely uh, confused by, your, by this formulation. I, idealism is, is the term for uh, the philosophical, uh, a philosophical school that says mind is everything, and that uh, patterns of mind are. Well, maybe you should use a different. You should create a different term for it because it, it's um, it's confusing, to, or at least. Okay. I, I'll I'll confess that it's confusing to me because if you're doing um, ideal forms and and then talking about idealism, and this is the same essential conversation, then that. I'm. I was, um, and still am a little uh, at sea yeah. about this. And if I'm at sea, I'm guessing some of our listeners may be at sea. Okay. Well, um, it's not. It's not necessarily the idealism or ideal forms that uh, Plato described. Although there may be relationships there, but the 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 simple distinction I'm just trying to draw is that if you ground if you ground your view and your of the world in terms of consciousness as being fundamental, then the fact of our awareness is less of a problem. Okay. It's certainly not a problem than the mm-hmm. uh, the if you ground everything in matter. Okay. And uh, where idealism dist- is distinguished from some forms of uh, what's called panpsychism, which is the idea that. All constituents in the in the world are uh, uh, experience at some level. Um, that uh, idealism, as this guy describes it, is more the view that the whole the whole universe is conscious, and then there are you might call it uh, dissociative states of that consciousness that represent the individual experience of consciousness. Okay, I mean that part I, I I'm I'm grasping, but uh, well, perhaps we should move on. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps we should. I've had my say, <laughs> and, and we were and, we were, and I and I certainly can't refute it. That's for well, sure. <laughs> well, but uh, you know, so 
I may have more to say on this at a, a at another date, but I okay. I think the main point I wanted to get across is that uh, from a first principles philosophical argument, I was appreciating the ability of this writer to make a strong case for why logically you can um, uh, cons- you know create your theory of reality out of uh, from the uh, uh, consciousness as opposed to from matter mm-hmm. and to me that's a instantiation of part of the vision of mystical positivism which is to use the rigorous tools of reason or logic to uh, deepen one's uh, uh, presence to the mystical okay but um, uh, that's interesting because in terms of the, our discussion in the first hour um, we were Grounding our appreciation of the mystical in the ephemeral, that that which is always changing, which is um, not generally how people think of consciousness, I think, uh, or uh, or attention, or whatever other term you were using. Well, in addition, you but uh, that's I mean that's an interesting point because and that actually might bear some uh, exploration here because I think the. Um, sometimes people think of consciousness as the transcendent, you know, or in, right, and exactly. I mean, uh, isn't that one in way to interpret some Hindu traditions, for example? I think when, when uh, people speak of awareness without object, mm-hmm. uh, that that's often used as an you know as uh, a way of pointing to or, or giving Brahm- voice Brahman, to right? yeah. To, uh, giving voice to the transcendent. Mm-hmm. And yet the ephemeral is um, the ground of uh, experience. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, our existence, our, the, the, our experience presents itself to us in the form of phenomena. Yeah. That is is experience there's a quality of experience to that and so both are you know i guess i guess the question is uh um it almost becomes semantic at that point if you have awareness uh without exper- without content or without without object uh is that uh, approachable or is is our awareness uh, uh, only find realization in uh, awareness of something? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I mean, you know, maybe as individual bits of a greater whole, the latter would be true. And as the fullness of the whole, the former would be true. So I'm... Um, so when you say approachable, what you're really meaning is, uh, is this, is this stuff help, uh, helpful to us in our condition? Yeah. And, um, um, I hope it is, um, approachable, but some of this, some of these abstract terms might be, more approachable to some people and less approachable to others. Well, yeah, it it is. I mean, I I enjoy that, but again, like I said, I don't 
I'm not trying to make great significance out of this. Uh, uh, I treat it more like uh, you know musical expression. So that you know this particular kind of philosophical inquiry for me, you know, you know, is kind of like listening to uh, Bach or something like that. Although mm-hmm. not a good example since you can relate to listening to Bach more than you can relate to uh, <laughs> reading abstract <laughs> philosophy. But I, but you get a sense of what I mean. It's it's a particular mode of expression. Mm-hmm. And it's a mode of expression that is still in and around the inquiry that we were uh, engaged in the first part of the show. Mm-hmm. Well, Mike, then I guess the, the the question that occurs to me to ask you is, um, do you think the philosophers, uh, etc., um, who write books about this? topic of consciousness or or material uh, what is it physicalism etc do you think that they use that um, endeavor those endeavors to actually deepen in a way that would allow them some greater access to the mystical that's a good question um, and I would say it's probably, uh, 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 again, to the point we made earlier, that uh, it's possible for someone to be drawn to the philosophical articulation of idealism or physicalism and be completely indifferent to a deeper implication. or a. Okay. Uh, and it's also possible that uh, one could be drawn to both and have an abiding... Uh, spiritual or meditation practice. Okay, but that would you're seeming to. I'm not uh, when you say both. Yeah, hey, both. I mean, I, I'm not. I, what I'm saying is that someone who's a physicalist or someone who's an idealist, uh-huh. uh, it's possible for them to both be very spiritual people. So I guess to your point, uh, I'm not. There may be nothing intrinsic in an abstract representation of a philosophical explanation for the world that uh, in and of itself has the sufficient content to uh, transform one's understanding of their spiritual nature. Okay. So, So it's kind of like I can go dig a hole in the ground as an archaeologist... And, um, I mean, I think this is what I'm hearing you say, that I can do that and um, have this spiritual practice that I may apply to my activity or or maybe not, depending on who, what, where. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're saying that digging these intellectual holes is... Can be is you can see that that the same sort of relationship to that activity to a kind of understanding of spiritual practice. Yeah, is that is that right? Yeah, I, I, yes, and and I would just I would probably go a step further to say that the reason that it matters and the reason why I'm even talking about it now is that to the extent that we have a growing appreciation in the intellectual communities for the uh, reality and importance of consciousness as a uh, object of study, I think that will 
promote socially and culturally a greater openness and tolerance for and support for genuine spiritual endeavors. Ah, well, that's the first thing I've heard that makes sense to me. <laughs> In this discussion. It's a long way getting here. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, uh, I, I finally found a... <laughs> you found a way in for me. I, I found a Thank way you. in for you. Thank you so much, because uh, I was just not seeing it. Well, and, and to put it into terms that uh, um, you would appreciate, uh, especially and vividly, is that your experience in um, your study of archaeology in terms of what the typical archaeological um, uh, understanding or way of approaching um, uh, spiritual practices of indigenous cultures was completely informed by a physicalist uh, uh, point of view and tended to locate those kinds of practices in the in the realms of superstition or uh you know oh you're talking about uh, uh, the the anthropo- anthropological yeah. distinction between etic and emic that is between um insider you know the uh the understanding from an outside point of view versus the participant point of view right and that the uh antic was or the insider point of view was uh I guess less privileged than the uh, etic, right? Right, emic. E- emic. Thank you. Uh, so, in that sense, uh, that that's part of a consequence of a kind of uh, uncritical acceptance of a physicalist point of view throughout the 20th century and the 19th century. Um, okay, maybe. So, uh, um, um, boy, that that's a long leap to go, but uh, well, but uh, but I see why you're doing it and what you mean by it. I think if if there were a uh, if the worldview, uh, if the you know the intellectual scientific worldview was an idealistic worldview, where mind and consciousness were considered as the ground, I I can't help but think there would be a different way of approaching those kinds of uh, traditions than what we have in the, you know, the what we've had in the 20th century in particular. I think it's, I actually think it's starting to change. Okay. And it's just like in the, the philosophical schools in the 20th century, the thing, the analytic philosophy, which was all about, you know, logic and the uh, uh, utilization of uh, uh, logic was uh, um the was what got all the funding and uh, metaphysics and questions about uh, larger uh, uh, concerns or concerns of consciousness tended not to. And so, as I said, you know, the, as these things shift, as there are uh, platforms and ideas, I think it it has it does have a effect on the culture, and it can have an effect on ultimately conclusions that we draw about. Uh, What's important and why we do the things that we do. Okay, that that now I I think I understand why you are have been an advocate for a particular uh, perspective. On yeah, this. but but we should be clear because uh, uh, I'm an advocate for this because I enjoy it intrinsically. 
Well, I think that, that's and, probably and, and so I can I can kind of uh, back out and say why is this relevant? And it's not mm-hmm. unlike uh, we were talking to a friend this morning about um, sort of enlightened uh, modalities of teaching children in order to give them a a more holistic sense of what it means to be a human. And this person who is so passionate about this was a teacher all his career. So yes, he's passionate about this. Right, you know, I, of, uh, of course, and, um, you know, I'm I'm on board, you know, um, not that I have the commitment that he does uh, exactly, but, um, but I appreciate, frankly, that um, from an historical perspective, the educational system of the West that has been pushed out throughout the world um i mean pushed into the into the rest of the world by the influence of western culture um has all kinds of um ramifications that I, that you know that we don't have time to discuss in the next these last few minutes of our discussion but but um but they are problematic and that and that changing the configuration of education and the understanding of education. Um, one of the other participants in that discussion you're referring to pointed out that if, if not just kids, but everyone understands that education is a uh, an activity that is available all the time, anytime, to anyone so inclined, um, that's an, that to me is a very important. Um, reconfiguration of the of the 19th century educational system that arose in the anglo anglophone world um and probably in french speaking etc where um people are essentially were essentially being trained to be cogs in in the developing right. capitalist machine and and i think the you know in another sense uh when we think about the implications of um, a physicalist perspective that you know when matter is the only is the most real thing then that naturally leads to a uh, privileging of power and uh, a focus on power how so because it's the you know it's like the uh, uh, power over matter is a becomes an object of uh, of uh, focus Mm -hmm. and I think that's why you you know you see that in the you know the evolution of science in the 20th century is uh, driven largely by uh, um, ways of harnessing more and more power for various purposes, primarily military. But um, mm-hmm. well, I'm not sure if I if, if I'll go along with that um, exactly, but um, but I, I understand your point, and I, I want, you know the basic direction and makes I understand what you're saying. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's a lot more complicated than that, and um, even more important is relations between people and how that gets uh, construed. But right. Well, I and I think my point is that when um, one uh, moves towards a more idealistic point of view, that experience and being and uh, uh, relationship I think become more interesting than power for power's sake. I, I, I'm. I hope you're right about that. I'm not. I'm not so sure. It's it's quite as straightforward as that. You're saying I'm being idealistic. <laughs> exactly. 
and I hope people realize he's playing with that word now. So, or Stuart's playing with that word. So, anyway, I so, think we've run to the end of our time pretty much. Yeah, more or less. Um, uh, any, we, any, we, fi- any final conclusion, concluding remarks you have? Um, well, I appreciate the uh, uh, discussion about the um, ephemeral versus the transcendental, and I think, as I said again, you know, the intent of this conversation is to uh, invoke and evoke the mood of that consideration, because as you said earlier, it's not about coming to an answer, and uh, anything we've said certainly doesn't constitute an answer, but it's about holding the question and having a relationship with the question and allowing the question to guide your experience as you explore and deepen around the question of how one discovers the transcendental in the midst of the ephemeral. Got it. Thank you. All right. Well, you have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, Rob and I have been discussing some of the spiritual practice issues that we've been examining in our personal lives within the context of our Taiyu teaching responsibilities and that have arisen in some of the Mystical Positivist shows that we've recorded over the last few months as well as some of the related conversations that we've had. So uh, the next two shows on the Mystical Positivist will be encore presentations. Uh, uh, Rob and I are going to be in Japan. I will be uh, performing with my Shakuhachi teacher, Masayuki Koga, in a series of workshops and performances throughout the country and looking forward to an extended lesson. So our next show will be on... June 22nd, our next live show will be on June 22nd, but on June 8th and June 15th, we will have encore shows. So tune in for those shows on Saturdays, June 8th, June 15th, from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, um, at the Mini Rivers, uh, uh, Thursdays at Mini Rivers event, coming up on on Thursday, June 6th at 7.30 p.m., we have a presentation Overtaken by Love, and that's uh, Raphael Block and David Field will weave poetry and music together in response to Earth's magic calling. Carol Griffin, another Marin-based poet, will share her poems with us to dive deep and delight. Raphael Block's poetry speaks to Earth's call for a heartfelt response to our global crisis. He spent a good portion of his adult life in London, where British English shaped his ear for sound, Raphael breathes in wonder at the earth's and our own rhythmic ebb and flow. David Field is a solo guitarist and instrumentalist who has a unique romantic and flowing style. His gentle manner and relaxed demeanor reveal an artist of great technical and emotional depth. David's sensitive contemplative arrangements weave a beautiful tapestry with Raphael's words. So enjoy that. That's Thursday, June 6th, 7.30 p.m., Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. We leave you with music from a CD called Pimpinone, a comic opera in three acts by Georg Philipp Telemann. Performed by the Baroque Orchestra of St. Luke's, Rudolf Palmer, conductor. This piece is a duet called Wilde Hummel, which I believe means wild bumblebee. Wow.
Oh, 